You know the theme of our year here at Thrive. Would you say it with me? It's four words. It's all for one name. And the reason that we call it all for one name is because Jesus Christ has done what no one else has done. So many people have shared their philosophies about life. So many people have told, told you how to be a better person. But there's only one person who's died on the cross to pay for your sins, to bring you back to God. His name is Jesus. And because Jesus Christ gave his all for us on the cross, the Bible says our appropriate response is to give our all for him, all for one name. His name is Jesus. Now, how do fallible, feeble, fallen people like us live all for one name? That's what we're unpacking under this theme called All for One Name. And we're doing so with the help of a fascinating book in the Old Testament called Second Samuel. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to that right now. Second Samuel chapter 24 in the Old Testament, first half of your Bible. It's the last chapter of Second Samuel is Second. Samuel 24, but we're not going to end 2 Samuel and finish our time there, but we're going to be going back to this book. It just so happens that my message today is on the last chapter of this book. But if you're taking good notes today, and I hope you are, the name of this message is called Count on Me. Turn your name and say, Count on Me. Count on Me. Let me tell you a story. Once I was serving as a volunteer for kids at a camp, and maybe you're someone who has done something like that recently or before. I was helping out at this camp, and we were taking a bunch of kids to Newton Wave Pool in Surrey. And these boys that I was in charge of were super naughty. Oh, they were loud. Oh, they were rambunctious. Oh, they wouldn't listen. It was frustrating, man. Do you know how I feel? Oh, my goodness. And it was one of those things where we're sitting in the back of the bus. They're screaming. They're shouting. They're jumping up and down. They're pulling girls' hair. They're, they're doing all these things. I'm like, stop, stop, stop. Please stop. And you know what? I found one way to get them to be quiet. And you know what that was? I said, okay, guys, I want you to look out the window. We've got about 30 minutes before we're going to get to Newton Wave Pool. And so while we're on this bus for the next 30 minutes, we're going to play a game. We're going to see who can count the most cars outside. So as we're going to Newton Wave Pool, I want you to count as many cars as you can. But here is the catch. You cannot speak. You cannot shout. You have to whisper your counting. And so all of a sudden, things got really quiet. And I'm sitting there, and all I can hear is, oh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine, nine. And all these guys, all these little boys, are, they're, they're, they're trying to count. And it, it was one of those things. It was the quietest 30 minutes of our whole bus ride, and everyone was thankful that we played that game. And see, why do I share that with you all today? It's because today's message I'm here to share with you is called Count on Me. And we're going to look at a passage from the book of 2 Samuel where David does some counting. And the way he counts ends up affecting everyone else on his bus, so to speak. Now, the fact is, 2 Samuel 24 is not an easy chapter. It's actually quite difficult in terms of the events that take place in it. And it's also difficult to kind of extract lessons from this chapter. So how do you apply this chapter of God's word into our lives. But we're gonna get into it and give our best shot at it today. I hope you'll join us right now as we go into it. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse one with me as we read the scriptures together right now. It says, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he incited David against them saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. See what's going on. See, this is a relative time of peace or a time of relative peace in the nation of Israel where David is the king. Now, David decides, I'm going to order a census. I want my government officials to count how many men in our nation are willing, ready, and able to fight for our nation. Now, the general of David's army, his name is Joab. And if you've been following with us through the book of 2 Samuel, you know that Joab is not a nice guy. He's pretty deceitful. He's kind of evil. And Joab, even he thinks to himself, hey, is this the best thing to do? Order a census now? And so he asks King David, King, why do you want to do such a thing? But David overrules him. He's like, just do it already. 
And so his government officials, they travel all over Israel, counting the fighting men of Israel. And then they come back to David with a report. And in verse 9, we get that report. What does it say? It says, Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword. And in Judah, 500,000. So David, he gets this report that there are a total of 1.3 million men who are ready, willing, and able to fight for the nation of Israel. And when David hears the result, David's response is one of sorrow. Do you know why? Look at verse 10. It says this. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Let me ask a question. What was so wrong about what David did? What's so bad about counting people. How is that a sin? How is that foolish? Is it wrong to count? You know, back when I was a kid, the number one educational program for kids on TV, it wasn't Blippi. uh, It wasn't Barney the Dinosaur. It was Sesame Street. And Sesame Street, they had a purple puppet called The Count who would teach you how to count. His formal name was Count Von Count. And I still remember, he'd be like, kids, ah, ah, ah. That's how he laughs. Kids, ah, 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 ah. Count with me. Von Two, three, four. Are you saying that 2 Samuel 24 saying there's something wrong with learning to count? Or say you're an accountant in this place. Are you in some kind of evil profession that you need to get out of right away because there's something wrong with counting based on 2 Samuel 24? Of course not. That's absurd. See, if counting was somehow wrong or evil, you wouldn't see so many numbers and stats in the Bible. If counting was somehow wrong or evil, Jesus wouldn't tell a story comparing himself to a shepherd who leaves 99 sheep to find one lost one if counting is not something we're supposed to do. See, the lesson from 2 Samuel 24 is that not that counting is wrong. It's about why we count. And see, we ought to keep this in mind. Back in David's time, the only time that a census would be taken was in preparation for war. It was for drafting people, enlisting people into the army. In fact, the book of Exodus actually lays out a procedure for how you go about carrying out a census. And and it's not that a census is wrong in and of itself, but it's a couple things. First is a census was very costly. And you're going to see this is that it's going to take about nine months for David's government officials to travel from place to place in Israel, collecting data, collecting, you know, numbers, counting people. That's nine months of taxpayers' dollars going to government salaries, food and travel expenses, hotel fees, per diems, just to administer this census. And then to emphasize just how much work was involved, verses 5 to 8, which we won't look at, but if you read it yourself, verse 5 to 8, just talk about all the different places where the government had to go to do this census. Now, not only was it costly for the government, but it cost the people even more. Because according to Exodus chapter 30, When there's a census and a person wants to enlist in the army as part of the census, something that they had to do was pay a fee. They would have to pay a fee called atonement money. Look at Exodus 30 verse 12 with me. Read it with me. What does it say? It says, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over, those 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than half a shekel, and the poor are not to give less when you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord making atonement for your lives. So what's going on? In a census, it's a lot like the game Red Rover that a lot of you would play as kids. You know the game Red Rover? You got a big field. You got two lines of kids. They're not there to play World Cup soccer. Rather, they're there to play Red Rover. How does Red Rover work? You have two lines of kids. One line calls out to the other line, Red Rover, Red Rover, we call James over. And then James hears his name, and he has to run across, cross over to the other side, and try to break through the line, possibly joining this line. And see, a census in Israel was a lot like that. You had two lines, and you have this lineup of people who are already listed, and then people who are not yet listed. And they will call out to the people not yet listed. They'd call them by name. And if your name is called, if you are ready, willing, and able to fight, then what you would do is you would cross over. 
You cross over from one line to the next, just like in Red Rover. But you do one more thing, is that every man 20 years older or 20 years or older who's willing to fight, they would, as they cross over, they will pay a fee. And that fee was called atonement money. It was half a shekel. And see, what is half a shekel in today's economy? Half a shekel, probably about $2,000. So you could just imagine this, is that David, he's ordered his government to spend a bunch of money, we don't know how much, on ordering and administering the census, census, and they count 1.3 million men from the census. Now, each of those 1.3 million men, they pay $2,000 Canadian to the government for it. And what is that? 1.3 million men times $2,000, that's about $2 billion of taxpayer money. $2 billion, and this being collected not because there's a war, not because they need it, but just because David wants to count the men. It's not for any really good reason. And see, not only was that a financial cost, there's a huge emotional cost to a census. Do you know that? Because the moment the government orders a census, husbands, fathers, sons, they're getting ready to leave their families. Wives are getting ready to lose their husbands. Children are getting, to re- getting ready to lose their brothers and their dads. Parents are getting ready to lose their sons. It wasn't something you just do for kicks. A census was serious business. And this all happening when there is no war going on, but David just says, let's do it anyways. So one reason why David calling a census and numbering the people that way is that the reason why it was a sin, the reason why it was foolish was because it was a waste of resources. It was wasting what God had entrusted to David as the king of Israel. And see, there's a lesson for us in this place as well, is that we often think of sin as lying or cheating or adultery or murder. But see, there's more to sin than that. See, in what, at its heart, what is sin? You can write this down. Sin is whenever I make poor use of what God has given to me. Sin is when I misuse, abuse, or don't use in a wise way what God has entrusted to me, whether it's my finances, or it's my time, or it's my relationships, or it's my opportunities, or it's my health, or some other gift or talent that God has given to me. You know, I've shared with many of you in the past how as a teenager, I struggled with a borderline eating disorder is that I was so obsessed with my weight and my appearance and how I looked in the mirror that for years of my life, I spent those years just so into watching what I ate, not you know going days without eating very much, exercising, but to an extreme level, like over-exercising, and it wasn't healthy for me at all. And it was during that season, at the end of about four years, that God would end up meeting me in a really powerful, personal way that has changed my life forever where he showed me that God's love for me isn't based on how much fat I can pinch from my side or how thin my face feels or how much I weigh or did I exercise or what do I eat, but that God's love for me is based on who he is. He is love. And so God's love for me is without condition. And the same goes for you. And see, you know, that, that encounter of God's love in my life has changed my life. I wouldn't be here without that. And see, that's one way to look at it. There's another way to look at it. And I never really thought about it back then, but this is kind of how I look at it in some ways today as we think about this passage, is that back then, another way of looking at it is that I was living a really unhealthy life. I was misusing what God had entrusted to me, namely my health, my body. And, you know, it was one of those things where God used that season in my life to kind of tap me on the shoulder and say, JB, I love you. There's a better way to live than this, man. Don't do this to yourself. Don't misuse what God has given to me. And so in a very gentle way, he was turning me away from a really unhealthy, sinful direction toward a much healthier direction for my life. If you believe that, say amen. And see, how about you today? Is there an area of your life where if you have to be really honest with yourself, an area where maybe you're not making the best use of what God has given to you, whether it's your time, or your health, or your finances, or even the lessons that God has taught you and how you're applying them today. See, one of the lessons we can learn from 2 Samuel 24 is this. Don't waste what God has entrusted to you. If you have an idea about something you want to do that's going to use up a lot of resources, count the cost before you pursue that idea. That's part of being a wise steward. It's looking before we leap. It's counting the cost before we pursue that idea. In fact, you could say this, is that David's sin in 2 Samuel 24, wasn't that he counted too much. 
that David's sin was actually that he didn't count enough. Yeah, he wanted to count the men who could fight for him, but actually what he didn't count was the cost of doing so. He didn't count the cost, and in so doing, he wasted and you know, misused so much of what God had entrusted to him. And so if you find in your own life that there is an area of your life where maybe you are misusing what God has given to you, maybe you're not making the best, wisest use of what God has given to you, then maybe today's the day when you can ask God for wisdom to spot that area and courage and wisdom to know how to make the changes you need to get to a healthier place. That's the first way that David sinned by calling the census. It was by misusing using what God had given to him. But there's another way that David sinned by calling the census. See, here's the thing. God doesn't care just about what you do. He cares about why you do it. God looks at our heart, our motives. Just like in 1 Samuel 16, when David, as a young man, is first anointed king, God says, man looks at appearances, God looks at the heart. And see, the reason why David, in his heart, wanted to count the fighting men wasn't to serve the people. Rather, it was to feed his ego. In other words, David had gone from anchoring his life, his identity, his joy, his happiness, his purpose for living, anchoring it all in God and God's purpose for his life. And he shifted it now to anchoring his identity, his hope, his life in something other than God. He's starting to depend on other things like his circumstances, the numbers, the size of his army. And see, that gives us a clue into what that sin is. And see, what is sin? Sin on one hand is misusing what God has entrusted to us. Sin is also another thing. Sin is when I anchor my hope in something other than God. Sin is when I depend on someone or something more than I depend on God to save me. How about you? In this season of your life, if you have to be really honest with yourself, are you putting your hope in God to save you? Or are you putting your hope in something else to save you? Are you putting your hope in God's plans, purposes for your life? Or are you putting your hope more in people, a person, a plan you have, your own abilities, your own goals, your own circumstances. See, if you want to maximize the joy, the peace, the impact, the blessing of your life, one lesson from 2 Samuel 24 is this. Don't anchor your hope in stuff like numbers, people, circumstances. Anchor your hope in God and his promises. Amen? And so, you know, in my own case, it's where when God, you know, allowed me to encounter his love in a really personal way, it was one of those things where it's like God was saying, JB, don't put your hope in how thin your your face feels. Don't put your hope in how much fat you can pinch off of your side. Don't put your hope in how much you weigh on a scale, but put your hope in me and what I say about you, that you are loved, that you matter, that my love for you will never change, though other things in your life change. And see, put another way. It's as if God was saying to David, don't count on people, don't count on circumstances, count on me to save you. And see, in counting the fighting men, David had basically sinned in two ways. One, by wasting resources that God entrusted him. Two, by putting his hope in something other than God. Now, eventually, David realizes this. And because David is a man after God's heart, in other words, you know, he wants to honor God. Sometimes he messes up big time, but he goes back to God. He's a man after God's own heart. He realizes that. And so verse 10, it says this, David was conscious stricken. After he had counted the fighting men, he said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. And then verse 11 says, before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Oh, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. See what's going on. To tell David what's going to happen next, God sends a prophet called Gad. Oh my God. A prophet called Gad to talk to him about what the punishment for David's sin is going to be. See, David and Gad, they've been friends for decades. In fact, even before David was a king, when he was running in the wilderness for his life from Saul, he had a friend called Gad, and they were very much good friends, brothers. You know, Gad and David, they would pray together. They would confide in one another. David would ask Gad for advice. What do you think I should do? And to this day, up to that point, David still has Gad as one of his trusted advisors. Praise God for friends who can walk with us through life. That was the kind of friend that David had in Gad. And see, there's two lessons here where Gad comes to David and brings a message from God to say, okay, this is what's going to happen next. Among the many lessons, here's one. In his justice, God can't turn a blind eye to sin. 
See, when sin happens, God, he's so just that he can't just be, oh, whatever. No, no big deal. No, God is just. He is more just. He is more holy than anything you can imagine. And his justice is so strong. It's so intense that it requires that every wrong be righted, that every injustice be stamped out and accounted for, and that every, you know, every way that someone has sinned, it be punished. In fact, the Bible says it this way. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's because God is a just God. And there's a second lesson we learned is that though God makes available forgiveness to those who sin, our sins still have real practical consequences for us and for others. You know, if if you mess up in a big way, say like, you know, someone commits adultery, you know, sure, God can forgive that person instantaneously the moment they ask for that forgiveness, but does that mean there's no fallout? Does that mean there's no broken hearts? Does that mean there's no turmoil in the family? Of course not. There are real practical consequences for us and others whenever we sin, even though we ask God for forgiveness. And see, according to Exodus 30, when a census was done incorrectly, improperly, there was a consequence. And the consequence was there would be a plague. For whatever reason, that was the consequence. And in this case, Gad, the prophet, goes up to David and says, hey, you know what? In this case... The Lord is willing to let you, David, choose what the punishment is going to be. And so in verse 13, Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. Now, before we get to David's answer, let me ask you a question. Does God actually send famine? Does God actually send plagues? Does God actually send tsunamis that wipe out a bunch of people as if God is personally actively doing these things? Doesn't that kind of sound like that's what's going on? You know, you want to keep this in mind if you've got that question in your head. Is that the Old Testament mindset, people living in the Old Testament, their mindset was that everything is from God. And in a way, they're right insofar as you won't have anything if there wasn't God. God is at the end of the day, he is the ultimate cause. But see, here's the thing. When you get to the New Testament, you get a much more defined idea of who God is and why bad things happen. It's that every good thing that you have in life is from the hand of God because God is good. He's better than anyone else. But at the same time, there's evil, there's suffering, there's sickness, there's death, there's famine, there's plague, there's earthquakes, not because God is evil and cruel and it was like, ha ha ha, I want to give this to people, but rather it's part of living in a broken world that is broken by sin, where people sometimes make the wrong choices and consequences result, where this world, even nature is broken by sin. And as a result, these things happen. So in the New Testament, you get a more defined view of who God is and why things happen. So if in case you're wondering, that's possible answer to that question. And here's another one. Here's another question. If David was the one who messed up, why does everyone else need to suffer? For example, of the three options that David is given, so will be three years of famine, three months of running from your enemies, or three days of plague, two of those three options involve other people suffering. Why would God do that? And see, David would even raise the question himself, like, these people are just sheep. Put it on me. Just put it on me. But see, here's the thing. There's a lesson we need to learn from this as well, is that when a leader sins, when a leader messes up, it doesn't just affect that leader, him or her, but it actually has an impact on everyone in that leader's care, whether directly or indirectly. So don't think that when you sin, oh, it's just me and God, just me and God, doesn't affect anybody else. Actually, whether we know or not, it actually does have an impact on others. And so it's about realizing the impact of sin and why it was so important that we have a Savior to help us in our sin. So that's another part to it as well. But let's look at verse 14 and read it with me right now. What does it say? It says, David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of of men. You see, over the course of David's life, after so many years of running from his enemies, David has learned a really important lesson, which is that God is so much more merciful than people. Have you ever had that lesson learned in your life too? Is that God is so much nicer than people can be sometimes. And see, as someone who lived long enough to remember what the 90s were like living in North America, I found this, and this is obviously a general statement 
but here's, here it is. is that back in the 90s, it seemed like the general sentiment and attitude of people across culture, across pop culture, across society, was very much about permissiveness. It's about, you know what, just do whatever you want, say whatever you want to say. It's cool to be anti-authority. It's cool to be, you know, just like a bit rebellious. It's cool to, you know, just do whatever you want. It's cool to be irreverent. And so who cares? Whatever you do, just do it. And, and it's almost like this, this, the pendulum was right here at a very extreme of permissiveness. Like just do whatever you want. Who cares? There was that. And now, if I were to say, what's the kind of general attitude of people in 2022? I would say that there's a good argument you can make that the pendulum has swung the other way now. Where now, the main flavor of the day is not permissiveness, say whatever you want, do whatever. It's the other way. It's condemnation. It's where you look on social media, you look in just general you know, pop culture, is that, you know what? It's like, that person said that, cut them off. That person believes that, cancel them out. Oh, I can't believe that, that person's such a hater. I can't believe I had lunch with that person. I can't believe I'm friends with that person. Oh, cut me off. Get away from me. Quarantine me from that person. And it's this idea of cancel culture, where instead of there being real dialogue and respect for differences and trying to understand where each other's coming from and offering forgiveness and asking forgiveness for when we mess up, is instead it's all about immediately, whether you understand the person, whether you understand the situation, forget it. You're out of my life. Get out of here. That's how things go. You're off the board. You know, you're out of here. Get out. Of, and and that's, that's the general sentiment it seems like today. And see, here's the thing. Let me tell you this. If you are sometimes disturbed or discouraged by that kind of culture, let me tell you something about God. God is not just more just than we could ever be. He's also more merciful than we could ever be. God is full of mercy and compassion. What you find in the Bible is that God is willing to hang out with and even serve people who are in stark disagreement with him. And he would rather cancel out our sin than cancel out the sinner. And how do I know that? Because that's the gospel message. Because the idea that when we had no way of reaching God, when we were separate from God because we had rebelled against him because of our sin, God didn't cancel us out. He didn't just say to hell with you, forget about you, you're out of my life. Instead, when we had no way of reaching God, like a game of Red Rover, like a census where only the blamelessness of Jesus would qualify him to fight unlike anybody else. Jesus, when there was a distance between us and God, he crossed over from heaven's camp to our side. And he lived the life that no one else could live. A life that met all of God's requirements. And not only did he live that kind of life on our behalf, he also, as he crossed over, he paid the atonement money. Not half a shekel, not $2,000, but the price of his life. He died on the cross for our sins. And so when we needed a savior to bring us back to God, God didn't say, forget about you. I cancel you out. But in his mercy, he sent Jesus who said, count on me. Count on me. That's who Jesus is. That's why Christmas is such a joyous thing. It's because at Christmas, we celebrate how Jesus is the savior that we needed when we didn't have any other hope. If you believe that, say amen. And see, what's the lesson here? Is that God is so much more merciful than anyone you will ever meet. People can be cruel, but God is full of compassion. The mercy of God far exceeds the mercy of people. And David got that. He understood that over his lifetime. David would prefer the wounds of a friend who loves him and knows him and who knows when enough is enough than to be attacked by an enemy who doesn't know when to quit. David would rather have God being the one to deliver the punishment than people who have no self-control as to when enough is enough. And so that's why he says, God, let me fall into your hands because your mercy is great. Don't let me fall into the hands of people. And so look at verse 15. It says, so the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. 70,000 people died in this plague of three days. See, David, he had put his hope in people and in numbers by calling the census. He ends up losing the very things that he put his hope in. And by comparison, you know, we've got 70,000 people dying in this three-day plague. They say that in Canada, uh, over the past three years, about 4.5 million cases of covid and of those 4.5 million cases, they say that approximately 50,000 people have died from COVID-19. In the U.S., a lot more cases, about 100 million cases of COVID and a million deaths. Let me ask you this question since we're talking about it. Was COVID-19 a plague 
from God to punish people's sins? Was it? Just like kind of your second Samuel? Do you think that? Do you believe that? Let let me give you the the answer. Romans 3.25. For God sent Christ Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and to end all God's anger against us. He used Christ's blood and our faith as the means of saving us from his wrath. See, what does that say? It's saying that all of God's wrath toward our sin was placed on Jesus Christ. And that when Jesus Christ hung on a cross, that was God's wrath and anger toward our sin landing on one person. His name is Jesus. And the reason why Jesus, before breathing his last breath, would say on the cross, it is finished, is because he was talking about the wrath of God that is now extinguished on him. Because all of our sin, all of our failure, and all of God's wrath all went to one single intersection. It's the cross where Jesus died. And see, God now waits for each and every person in this world, on this planet, to respond to what Jesus Christ has done. And if you receive what Jesus Christ did in the cross, you hide behind the cross and the covering that comes with it, then the Bible says there is no wrath on you anymore. But if you step outside of the cross and you say, I'm a good person, I can save myself, then guess what? The wrath is still on you. The question is, which one will you choose? God has made a way. He's made a way for you. But the question is, will you take it? And so is COVID-19 this plague from God to punish people's sins going, die, die, die. I'm mad at you. I'm mad at you. Kill, kill for your sins. No, Jesus has taken the wrath already. Because you can see this through Jesus Christ, that God's agenda is not to kill, steal, and destroy people's lives. God's agenda is to bring life and life to the full. See, with that in mind, look at verse 16 with me right now. It says, when the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. You see, earlier David said, let me fall into the hands of God because his mercy is great. Let me not fall into the hands of men. See, David was betting on God. David was betting on God's mercy. He was betting that God would be merciful in this case. And David shows he's proven right right here. Because verse 16 suggests that so many more people could have died and should have died in this plague until God, who hates to see people die, stops it prematurely and says, enough, no more, stop. And see, the plague stops just as it is about to hit the property and the family of a guy called Arana, the Jebusite. And see, he's at the threshing floor. He's sifting wheat at the threshing floor on a high place, on a flat high place. He's sifting the wheat. And the plague is just about to hit him. And, and, and God says at his mercy, stop, enough. And see, verse 18 says, On that day, God went, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Notice this, is that earlier the Lord had sent the prophet Gad to tell David about the punishment for his sin. And now three days later, the Lord is sending that same prophet Gad to tell David how to make things right again. What does that tell you? That tells you something about the heart of God. Is that God is just as intentional about restoring a person after they mess up as he is about punishing punishing them when they do. That's the heart of God. God is a restoring kind of God. He wants to restore you after a hurt. He wants to reconcile after a fight. That is his heart. And so that's why in the very place where God ordered the plague to stop at the threshing floor of Arana, that's where God tells David, build an altar here. Make a sacrifice here. Because once again, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. So David, he goes up to Arana, goes up to his house. He, you know, bangs on the door. You know, Arana, he opens. He's like, oh, oh, you're the king, King David, your majesty. And, and he's like, oh, no, no, no need to bow. I, I just want to let you know, um, I need this threshing floor. Can I get this threshing floor? Can I, can I buy it from you? And Arana's like, hey, uh, no, 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 no. Let me give it to you. Don't buy it from me, please. Your majesty, you're the king. Like everything I have, it can be yours if you want. And now they start fighting for the bill. 
Just like some people do in restaurants. It's like they're fighting for the bill. Who's going to pay for it? Who's going to? And, and see, Iran, he's so willing to give everything to David for free. But David will not take it for free. Instead, what does he say in verse 24? It says, but the king replied to Iran, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. See, why is that? Why did David not just get the free gift? Why not just take it? See, it's because David had learned a really important lesson through this whole experience with the plague. He learned the importance of counting the cost, which is that he recognized how costly his sin had been and how much, how dearly the people had paid for David's mistake. And because his sin came at such a high cost, David didn't want to give God just a nothing kind of sacrifice. He wanted to give something to God that cost him something too. Something that would remind him of the high price that was paid all across the board. And see, David, he understood that giving God worship, which costs you nothing, isn't really worship. That's just getting freebies. And see, David insisted, I need to pay something for this. Otherwise, I can't worship God. I need to give God something that costs me something. And what's the lesson there for us? You can write this down. Is that don't give God cheap worship. Give God worship that costs you something. See, our sins were so costly. It cost Jesus Christ his life. And see, Jesus paid dearly for our failure. And since God has paid the highest, most costly price possible for our sin, it's only fitting that in response, we give to God costly worship. Amen? Because Jesus gave us all for us. It only makes sense that we give all for his name. And see, don't come to church then as someone who's just a consumer. I'm just here to take I'm just here to be served. That's why it's service, because it's, you know, serve me. You know, and just kind of like, I, I just want to take, I'm a consumer. I just want to get free stuff. You know, and don't get me wrong, if you're a first time guest, get your free stuff, but that, we want to bless you that way. But it's if you're an, an ongoing member here of Thrive and you, you say, yeah, this is my church. Let me ask you, what's your attitude when you come to worship God? Do you just do what's easy and convenient, what you're used to, if you feel like it, or do you give God worship that costs you something? is that do you come not just to receive, but also to give? Do you come not just to spectate and watch other people worship, but do you come and say, I'm going to be a participant. I'm going to give God my best worship. And see, why is that? It's because God is worthy of our praise, number one. And number two, when it comes to worship, so much of what you get out is impacted by what you put in. And if you don't give God very much, if you're just kind of almost like half here and half not, Half year online, half not online. You're kind of, you know, distracted, kind of, guess what? You're not going to get very much out of worship and not what, guess what? God isn't either. But when you give God costly worship, when you go out of it and say, God, you're going to be my focus. I'm going to give you my best. That's when you really start to understand what worship is all about. Question for you today. Do you give God costly worship? Do you worship God based on what is easy and comfortable and convenient for you all the time? Or do you actually go out of your way to say, God, I want to give you something that costs me? You know, whether it's driving in the snow, or you, know, you want to be safe, but you know, driving in the snow, or it's, you know what, even if it's 5 a.m. and I need to serve, I'm going to do it because God did so much more for me. Or it's like, you know what, I know this is not the role that I asked for, but I'm willing to do it because God did something greater for me. Or you know what, as you look at your schedule next year, you're thinking about, oh, what am I going to get myself involved in? Oh, you know, I just want to take it easy. You know, I, I don't want to get too involved in anything. You know, I just want to relax and take it easy. Guess what? Don't get me wrong. You know, we all need rest. We all need to be wise in how we steward our time. But guess what? We were all called to live all for one name. And part of that is sometimes saying, you know what, sometimes it's going to cost me something. Do you give God costly worship? Because Jesus gave his all for us. Let's give our all for one name. Verse 25 says it this way. Read with me. It says, David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. See, here we are at the threshing floor of Arana. And it is really kind of uncanny and fascinating that it is there that the plague stops. Because you know why? First, scholars say that the threshing floor of Arana 
is the same place where centuries before in Genesis 22, a guy called Abraham is about to sacrifice his son Isaac because he thinks God wants him to be sacrificed. And as he's standing there and he's about to slay his son, God says, stop, no, don't touch Isaac, sacrifice the ram instead. And see, on that day, God had mercy on Abraham. It's the same place where God would have mercy on David. Isn't that cool? Another one, one generation after David, Solomon, David's son, is now the king. And when Solomon decides to build a temple that the people can worship in, guess where he decides to put that temple? On the threshing floor of Arana. The very place where atonement was made for the people's sin and for David's sin. That's where the temple will be built. Another one is that, remember how David conquered Jerusalem? We talked about this a few weeks ago. He went up kind of like Super Mario up through a pipe. Remember that? And see, David, who did he conquer to get to Jerusalem? He conquered the Jebusites. Who is the owner of the threshing floor? It's Arana, the Jebusite. And before, you got these two warring parties who are always in conflict. And now, they're not in conflict. Now, they are at peace. Now, they're working together. And it's in the context of unity, in the context of mercy flowing both ways, in the context of grace, that now something's being built. And it's not a war, it's an altar. Amen. See, there's just something fascinating about how it happened where Arana's threshing floor was. And what does that all signal us to? Here's the lesson. God loves to build his church in places where mercy flows, where forgiveness flows, where people will willingly sacrifice for God and for each other. See, in other words, God builds his church not in places where people just like to talk about how great they are, but in places where people talk about God's goodness and God's mercy in the midst of our brokenness and failure. And that's what we do every single week here at Thrive. It's not about how good we are. It's about how good God is through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You know, maybe, oh, come on. Maybe your heart is really full of bitterness right now. Maybe your home is full of bitterness right now. Maybe your family is fighting a lot right now. And there's a party that really wants things to be better. There's a party that really wants to see God do something here. Let me tell you this. God loves to build his kingdom where mercy and forgiveness flow. And for as long as you hold on to that grudge, for as long as you hold on to bitterness, guess what? It's in many ways blocking God from doing anything in your life because he waits for you to open the door. But see, God loves to build his church in places where people show mercy and forgiveness to one another. And that's what we do here at Thrive Church. If you believe us, say amen. But God also loves to build his church somewhere else in places where people willingly sacrifice for God and for each other. Just kind of like in David's census, where like, who's ready, willing, and able to fight for us? You know what? God's church is built on people who are willing to cross over from the line of comfort and convenience and say, I'm going to cross over, and I'm going to count myself as part of this team and say, I'm willing. You can count on me. I'll be here. I'll be here at 5 a.m. if you need to. I'll be here at midnight if you need to. I'll serve even when I don't feel like it. I'll serve even on a Sunday when I'm off. I'll do that because that's what Jesus did for me. Count on me. That's how the church is built. It's built not on selfishness, but on selflessness. And see, here's the thing. You know, I, I remember it was it's snowing outside right now. I can remember our very first Christmas service ever at Thrive Church. Uh, and it was one thing where on the night of our Christmas service, because we were a Saturday night church at the time, uh, we had a snowstorm. This crazy snowstorm. It was one of the biggest storms of all time in Vancouver. And I'm looking at the parking lot, and it is like covered in snow. But then I look and I see all these teenage boys and girls and they've got their toques on, their little coats, and they're shoveling snow. And they're trying to make room for people to come to our service and park in the parking lot. And praise God, it was on on that day that I was reminded, you know what? God builds his church on people who are willing to sacrifice. 
And that same spirit of sacrifice pervades every single time we get together here at church. We can't do what we do here if it weren't for people like you who give willingly, cheerfully, sacrificially, because that's how God moves. He moves on the hearts of people who, just like Jesus sacrificed, I want to sacrifice as well. God builds his church where mercy flows and where people are willing to sacrifice. If you believe that, say amen. Earlier, I told you that the lesson of 2 Samuel 24 is not that counting is wrong, but it's about why we count. And so let me just end with this. Over and over in the Bible, we see that God counts people. And the reason God counts people is because people matter to God. In fact, that's the main thing, if not almost the only thing that God seems to count in the Bible. For example, Jonah 4.11 says this. Read it with me. It says, but Nineveh, has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? See, God looked at the city of Nineveh and he counted. He counted 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. In other words, 120,000 people who are looking for hope, who are looking for direction, who don't know their life purpose, who lack a relationship with a living God. And he's like, I care for all these people, so I'm gonna send Jonah to tell them about me. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And it's almost like, you know, in elementary school, when you get on the bus, you know, the teacher, you know, counts one, two, three, might even pat you on the head. Why? It's not because they love counting. It's because they don't want to lose a single one because every person matters. And see, the reason why God counts is because people matter to God. And that brings me to the vision of Thrive Church. What's the vision of Thrive Church? Oh, we go over this in something called Getting to Know Thrive Church. And so if you've taken that, then you know this. And I want you to read this with me right now. This is our vision statement here at Thrive Church. Would you read with me in a big, loud voice? And just read it with me right now. It says, at Thrive Church, we exist for five purposes called A-E-I-O-U. A stands for alive. It means we're here to worship Jesus. E stands for expected. It means we're here to grow more like Jesus. I stands for involved. It means we're here to serve Jesus with our talents. O stands for out loud. It means we're here to lead others to Jesus. U stands for united. It means we're here to love Jesus' family, the church. And our dream is to build a church of 10,000 A-E-I-O-U leaders in greater Vancouver and around the world. Oh, come on. Would you give God some praise? Let's play together right now. What does that mean? See, There are five letters and five words that describe the kind of church we dream of being. That we want to be a church that's alive. Because when you worship Jesus, you come alive like nothing else. E stands for expectant. It means you're full of hope. Because you become expectant and full of hope when you start to grow more like Jesus. In your attitude, in your character, you become a disciple of Christ. Then I is for involved. We're involved because we're serving God with our talents. We're not just spectators who just watch others do what they do. But we give and we serve because that's what Jesus did for us. Oh, stands for out loud. It means we're here not just to hoard the love that God gave to us, but we're here to share it and to lead others to Jesus. And you stands for united. It means we're here to love the church, the family that God gave to us. And our dream is to build a church of 10,000 A-E-I-O-U leaders here in greater Vancouver and around the world. Oh, come on, give God some praise. Let's play together right now. I feel like singing right now. I could really use the band here in this place. Come on, band, come on up. And here's the thing. Let me tell you this. You might be like, you know what? Why, why 10,000, JV? Like, why? Like, is, is it because you just want to be like some famous mega church? That's, that's all, it's all about numbers to you guys? Is that what it is? No, it's not. Let me tell you why 10,000. First, when we first started praying about planning Thrive Church many years ago, the picture for some reason that we kept on seeing was a picture of 10,000 people. And we, to be faithful to that picture, we wanted to dream the biggest dream we possibly could, one that could not be accomplished if God were not to intervene. Something that only God could do in his power. And that's why, that's 10,000. But there's another reason that's even more important than that. What's the population of Greater Vancouver? You guys know, any guesses? Any guesses? Any idea, population of Greater Vancouver? They say, estimates say, Greater Vancouver has 2.6 million people. So about 3 million people who live in Greater Vancouver. Burnaby, Coquitlam, 
White Rock, Vancouver, Richmond. And see, let me ask you this question. How many of those three million people have a personal relationship with Jesus? Who've trusted Jesus as their savior and say, the reason why I have hope for eternity is because I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. How many of them, those three million people, do you think say that? Take 10 random people off the street in Vancouver. How many of those 10 do you think would say, yeah, that's me? I think it would be really generous for you to say even three people out of 10 would say that. You know, people talk about, oh, you know, Canada's a Christian nation. Well, then you know what? You know what? I would be really surprised if you had even three people out of 10 generally across Canada and, and across greater Vancouver who say, yeah, I believe that completely. And see, here's the thing. Say that's 33%, one third, 30%, whatever you want to call it. Out of, out of 3 million people in Vancouver, that means say maybe, just maybe, I think this is generous, I think it's overstating it, there's maybe 1 million Christians in Vancouver. 1 million people who place their faith in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That in greater Vancouver, there are roughly 2 million people who have no idea about the hope that is in Jesus Christ. They have no idea. They don't know it personally. They might have heard about, oh, church, oh, Jesus, I think, but they have no idea. And if you really want to know why Thrive Church exists, you want to remember that. Two million people who don't know who Jesus is. And if God was concerned for a city like Nineveh that had 120,000 people who didn't know him, how much more concerned do you think God is for a city like Vancouver where there are two million people who are headed to a Christless eternity? How do you think God does not break for that? That's why Thrive Church exists. Should I not be concerned about this great city? I think there's an earthquake that's about to start. See, here's the thing. What is 10,000 compared to 2 million people? Let me tell you what 10,000 out of 2 million is. It's half a percent. It's 0.5%. And see, 10,000 might sleep up such a huge lofty number, but guess what? It is tiny. It is minuscule compared to the big picture that we are in. In other words, there are way too many people in our city who don't know that Jesus loves them and who haven't received the forgiveness that Jesus alone made possible. And if we're a church that says, you know what, we're just happy to be a small church. You know, we're just happy to, you know, just have our little potlucks and our secret Santas and go for lunch together and, you know, do our thing on Sundays. Guess what? There's something wrong with our church. If that's the case, if we're just, you know, we're just going to be, you know, a happy social club together, you know, we do our thing, we do, our th- guess what? We're missing the point of why Jesus created the church in the first place. Because the reason why Jesus created the church wasn't just so that we could be some Christian social club that's happy together, that has fun together, that studies the Bible. All those things are great. All those things are important. But God created the church to be the most important vehicle that's going to reach people who do not know Jesus. And if the goal of our church is not to reach as many people as we possibly can, there's something wrong with that church. And see, when we say we want to reach 10,000 people, that's not a huge number. That's 1%. That's less than 1%. That's 0.5% of all the people possibly who don't know Jesus in our city. And my hope, therefore, is that every church in Greater Vancouver would have the goal of reaching at least 10,000 people. Now, would I consider it a failure if one day we only reach 9,997? Oh, we missed it by three. Or would I consider it a failure if we only reach 5,000 people? Or 1,000 people? Or say we stay about the same, about 400 people right now. Do I say, oh, we failed. Oh, no, how could we? No, no. There's a, there's, a, there's a little phrase that I once saw in a card that stuck with me ever since. It says this, aim for the moon, because even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. And see, that's not technically right, but it, 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 you, know what you, talk, you know what I'm talking about. Is the idea that when you aim for something really high, even if you don't make it, you will have probably reached more than you could have if you settled for a much lesser goal. And see, that's why we exist as a church. It's to reach as many people as possible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. If we're going to do it, let's do it with no regrets. If we're going to do it, let's do it without excuses. When we're going to do it, let's do it by giving everything we got. It's all for one name. It's not your name. It's not my name. It's the name of Jesus Christ by which men and women and children, the world is saved. Oh, come on. Would you give God your praise in this place together right now?
Let's all stand in this place together. The reason why Thrive Church exists is because our city needs Jesus. People, your friends, your family members, your coworkers, your neighbors, the people who are just driving right across the street right now, they need Jesus. They need Jesus more than they need a Christmas gift. They need Jesus more than they need their next meal. They need Jesus. And that's why we're here. And we have an opportunity to share Jesus with them uniquely in this year because Christmas is here. And so it's with that in mind that I want to encourage every single one of us here, every single one of us online, do an awesome job of courageously inviting people to Christmas service. Do an awesome job in whatever way you can to reach people with the love and the hope we have in Jesus because it's about him. It's all for one name. With that in mind, I just want to lead you in prayer, give you an opportunity to respond to God. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I have a question to ask all of you here. And this, this question is first for those of you who maybe you're here, maybe this is your first time in church, maybe this is your first time ever hearing this message, or maybe you've heard a message like, you know, God loves you unconditionally, he sent Jesus Christ for you, but you've never opened up your heart to Jesus. You've never said yes to Jesus and asked him and received from him the forgiveness that he made possible when he died on the cross for you. If that's you, then this is a prayer that I want to encourage you to pray right now. It's a prayer of simply, humbly, honestly asking God for his forgiveness. It's the most important prayer you could pray. I encourage you, if you've never prayed that prayer, I want you to encourage you to pray it together with us right now. And so if that's you, and you know that you need a savior to save you, you know that you're a sinner who can't reach God on your own, and that you need someone to pay that price, and you want to receive what Jesus did on the cross to pay that price for you, then I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Would you lift up your hand to God right now? Let the height of your hand just reflect how much you need him. And, you know, if you're online, just do one more thing for me. If you click the link in your chat room, it's going to get you to a prayer that we're going to pray on a screen. And for those of you who are here on site, you're going to take that, you know, someone may give you a card from our team with that same prayer on it. We're going to pray it together as it's a simple, honest, humble way of asking Jesus to give us his forgiveness, to give us the gift of his salvation that he made possible when he crossed over and paid for our atonement. If that's you and you need that, I'm just going to ask you to pray this prayer with me right now. In fact, we all pray this together in support of those praying for the first time. Just pray this with me right now. Say, Dear Jesus, thank you that because you love me, you died on the cross to pay for my sins. You rose again to give me life. Today, I open up my heart and I ask you, please forgive me of all my sins and fill me with your Holy Spirit. I place my trust not in what I do, but in what you've done for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer, then the Bible says, whether you have a card in front of you or not, if you prayed that prayer from your heart, then guess what? The Bible says you're forgiven of your sins, that you are a child of God. You have crossed over from death to life. You have a relationship with God, not based on what you have done, but what Jesus Christ has done for you. And since you believed in Jesus, we encourage you to take that next step because the Bible says believe and be baptized. The next step is baptism. Baptism is a really simple step. It's not a graduation you wait for like 10, 20 years down the road, but it's when you believe in Jesus, your next step, the Bible says, is to get baptized. And if you want more information on what that is, then you go to mythog.info, press the baptism button. We'd love to help you with that. Can we give a big hand to those who prayed that prayer just now. Praise God. Good morning, Thrive. Welcome to Thrive Church. We're so excited to see you all today. My name is Christine, and I hope you had a fantastic time here today at Thrive. And today we're only officially seven days away from Christmas. Start your seven-day countdown. Before we end off, let's jump in some announcements and take a look at what's coming up here at Thrive. If this is your first time joining us, we want to show you how much we appreciate you being here today by giving you a Thrive stainless steel water bottle. Simply scan the QR code at the back of your seat or visit mythrive.info and click new to Thrive to fill out the connect card. If you joined us online, we'll mail you the gift as soon as possible. And if you're here with us today at Leapon Place, please drop by the Welcome Center by the exit door after the service to pick up your gift. Once again, thanks so much for worshiping with us today. Christmas, I just can't stop talking about Christmas because we want to see you on Christmas. We want to invite you to Christmas at Thrive next Sunday, December 25th on site at Leapon Place or online. 
There will be three opportunities for you to celebrate with us at 9 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 12 p.m. And if you have kids ages 3 to 9, we've got them covered as well. Our team here at Thrive Kids put together a super fun in-person Santa's workshop that will be happening during the 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. service. There will be Christmas caroling, games, stories, and a visit from Santa. I'm sure this Christmas is gonna be an experience you won't forget. And hey, don't come alone. Be sure to invite all your friends and family. We can't wait to celebrate this Christmas with you. For more information, please visit thrivechurch.ca slash Christmas. Other than Christmas at Thrive, there's more! Whether you're a family with young kids or you're young at heart, we'd like to invite you to sign up for the Jingle and Mingle happening at Kidtropolis on this coming Friday, December 23rd from 5.30pm to 8.30pm. This is a perfect opportunity for you to connect with other young families and for you as parents to take a short break while your kids are having fun exploring all that Kidtropolis has to offer. To sign up, please visit MyThrive.info. Alright, so that concludes our announcements today. If you believe in the mission of Thrive and would like to contribute towards it, I highly encourage you to head on over to MyThrive.info and click online giving. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. Enjoy the rest of the week. I'll see you next week at Christmas at Thrive at either 9am, 10.30am or 12pm. Stay warm and see you soon.